is cultivating motivation, we reflect how the situations we encounter in our lives are due to our previous actions. So whether we're happy or miserable, conflicted or peaceful, this depends on our previous actions. And we have been the creator of those actions. So seeing that, that our present has depended on the past, then let's know our future depends on the present and make a very strong determination to live ethically, to live with a kind heart and especially to generate bodhicitta as a way of doing vast purification and creation of merit so that we can really fulfill our aims of benefiting all living beings. especially of creating a monastic mind. So I could have spent a long time, you know, going over the Vinaya and the details of the Vinaya, but I'd rather save that for another time and really focus on, you know, the, the principles of creating a monastic mind because I think that's, that's really important. Because if you have a monastic mind, then there's not so much danger that you break the precepts. Whereas if you know the precepts well, but you don't have a monastic mind, then there can be a lot of danger if you don't have uh, much self-restraint. Okay, so um, there's some sutras in the uh, connected discourses in the Pali Canon, uh, especially the 16th chapter, which are connected discourses with Kasapa. And Kasapa was one of the, the arhats at the time of the Buddha. He was the one who got them all together after the Buddha's Parinirvana to do the recitation of the Vinaya Sutra Abhidharma text. Okay? So, um, one here took place at Travasti, and uh, the, the Buddha is speaking, and he says, monastics, you should approach families like the moon. Okay. Now, approaching families means how you get involved with lay people. Okay. And, and this is a very touchy area, especially if you're living on donations and uh, depending on others. At this time, especially, you know, each meal they got was received directly from lay people. The Sangha didn't cook. There was no food stored overnight. They had no refrigerators. They were wandering from place to place. So they were really, really dependent on the lay people. And so we are too, but because we have refrigerators, it kind of changes. And we cook, it changes the situation a little bit. But still, the, the idea is 
that if the lay people are giving us donations, how, what kind of attitude do we have and how do we really relate to people? And this can relate uh, to the discussion that we had about friends a few days ago, you know, and how do we relate to the people who have been our friends for many, many years before we became monastics? Because, uh, you know, it, it's very easy just, you know, we pick up where we left off and when we see these people and where we pick up is our, our worldly mind because that's where we left off. <laughs> yeah. And so then when we're with them, we just kind of slide into the same way of relating, you know, talking about movies and sports and politics and, you know, laughing uncontrollably and having a lot of attachment towards them and, you know, giving them gifts so that they'll give us something bigger and flattering them because we know they like us, then they'll give us an offering. And so, you know, the relationship with old friends is is a rather important one once you become a monastic because it fits in right within how you do relate to lay people in general. Okay, The thing is that the people who only know you after you have ordained. They only know you as a monastic. And so in some ways it's easier because you're already in the robes and they have certain expectations of your behavior and and you do you know, your behavior has changed and so on. So in some ways that's easier. But the people who have known you your whole life, your family you know, and then your old friends, I mean, they knew you when, when you were little and all sorts of things. And so they can have all these expectations that you are the same way that you were before. Okay, and want you to do the same things that you did before and so on and so forth. Whereas as a monastic, you know, our, our relationship is different because the purpose of our life is different. So that doesn't mean we're standoffish and aloof, not like that. We should be warm and friendly. But we're also very clear that, you know, in the world, the, the purpose for your life is to have a good time, basically. I mean, the purpose for your life is the eight worldly concerns, isn't it? You know, for people who don't know the Dharma, the purpose of the life more or less just the eight worldly concerns. I'm not saying people are always selfish. People have good hearts. There's many good people in the world who do work for nonprofits and do charity work and so on and so forth. But in their downtime, you know, when they're hanging out with friends, then the purpose is usually to have a good time, isn't it? It's not to do your charity work or volunteer work and you know it's to sit and have a good time and so because they knew us before then you know they want to sit and have a good time with us and we have all these tendencies in the past and so we can very easily slide in and then it can really get rather sticky it can get sticky from our side because we're trying to keep precepts but you know especially in a country where our non-Buddhist friends are not Buddhist you know, our non-Buddhist friends are not Buddhist. That was <laughs> profound. Most of our friends are not Buddhist. They don't know what our precepts are. And so, uh, you know, if it's a Buddhist country, your old friends may know something about what's correct behavior towards a monastic. But the non-Buddhist people have no idea. So they see you. They're happy to see you. They want to come up and give you a big hug. You know, and they want you to sit down and feed you and to take you out to the movies and maybe have a drink or smoke a joint or, 
you know, all these kinds of things, and just to hang around, you know, go to the mall and look out, go golfing, go, you know, weightlifting, whatever you used to do with your old friends, you know, bowling, <laughs> you know, whatever it was. And so, you know, they're not Buddhist, they don't know what meditation is, they don't know what you're trying to do with your life, and they expect you to do that. And then it becomes a little bit difficult, like, um, well, what do I do? Because if I do all these things, it's kind of, you know, it makes my mind sloppy and it infringes on the precepts. But if I don't do them, then the people are going to... This is what we tell ourselves. I'm not saying it's true. But we tell ourselves, if I don't do it, they're going to think I'm puritanical. They're going to think I'm aloof and cold. Um, and I have bodhisattva vows, so I, and one of them is to comply with the wishes of sentient beings. So... You know, they want me to go out to the steakhouse and to go see this movie full of sex and violence afterwards, and so I better do it for their sake, otherwise they're going to get a bad impression of the Dharma. And it sounds funny, but I know many cases in which this is exactly what somebody's thought, you know. And especially, you know, the whole bodhisattva about thing is very slippery. Oh, yeah, for the benefit of others. And, and then all this, oh, they're going to think Buddhism is weird if I don't do it. I mean, it's all of our discomfort with who we are as a monastic and our paranoia about, you know, I need everybody to like me. Yeah. I don't want to stick out. Everybody has to like me. If I'm the only one not drinking, they're going to think bad of me. They're going to think bad of Buddhism. Actually, they might be quite happy. Maybe they don't want to drink either. And they're just doing it because they think everybody else wants them to. But anyway, you know, so we get into these weird states of mind and we don't know how to relate to the people. And then we go to the other extreme. Oh, I'm a monastic, you know. And I just sit here and you know, and we don't act very human at all. And, you know, I'm sorry, that's against my precepts. I don't do that. Um, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, so we don't know how to relate. So it takes some time getting, getting used to it and knowing how to explain to our non-Buddhist friends what, you know, our, our new life as monastic they may or may not, may not feel comfortable with it. Similar with our family, they may or may not. When I became a vegetarian, which was even before I became a Buddhist, I came home to my family's house. My mother said, we have nothing to give you. That wasn't quite accurate, but that was how it looked in, in her eyes because I was the only vegetarian she ever knew in her life. Yeah? And so then I had to, you know, well, I can eat baked potatoes and I can eat salad and I can do this and so I'll help you get it ready. And, you know, if you want to go out to eat, there's always side orders of string beans I can have. And, you know, so you have to kind of teach people. Yeah. And, but you have to be comfortable in your own skin when you do it. Yeah. And so kind of know what your role is as a monastic without being too, you know, kind of held back and aloof or just sliding back into who you were before. And especially around your family because, you know, families know each other very well. They know how to push each other's buttons extremely well, don't they? You know? Extremely well the family members know exactly what to say to really get at somebody else. 
And so sometimes you have some families, you know, every family dinner is very similar because they know how to push each other's buttons and it's the only way they know how to relate to each other. Okay? Yeah. And so, you know, some people come from that kind of family and then, you know, then what do you do? You're a monastic. You're trying very hard not to fall into your old habits, but with your, you're with your family and your brother said this. And, you know, every time your brother said that for the last, you know, 59 years, you said this. You can't let this one go by. Yeah. And you just, you know, there it comes out again. Same thing you've been saying for 59 years, you know. It's your fault, not mine. Um, yeah. <laughs> he started it. <laughs> My sister started it, not me. <laughs> yeah. Should we just go right back into the home? And then also with mom and dad, you know, we all know the look, don't we? Yeah, I was talking with one mother, and she was saying, you know, about the look. You know the look your mother has when you were a little kid? You know, you could be clear across the room. And if you got the look, you knew what was going on. Okay? So, you know, all our mo- you know, we're adults. All our mother does is even give a little twinkling of the look. And, you know, we're, we're back being three and four years old terrified. Yeah? Or rebellious. Or, you know, whatever our, our, our trip was. So, you know, these kinds of things come up. So we have to kind of know, well, what, what is my role with family and friends? And how do I keep my dignity as a monastic and yet still be approachable to people? And not be stiff myself, because that's no fun. But not be so sloppy, because that's not so good. Okay? But so it's something that you have to work out. Yeah. So here they're talking, especially, you know, at the time of the Buddha, they would be going to lay persons' houses for lunch. So, you know, some of these lay people may know the monks. Some of them don't. Okay. And I would say probably most of them didn't know them when they were still lay people. So there's already, you know, some kind of space. And, you know, Indian people knew that, you know, somebody who was a shramana was a renunciate. And they had some respect and all. But, you know, our families don't necessarily. Yeah. I mean, my family thought I had joined a cult. So, um,. Yeah, so we have to think something about this, you know, how to react. Or you go and, you know, you see your old partner, yeah, and then, you know, watch what the mind does. I find it so interesting. We're talking how sometimes people, um, well, I shouldn't get into that. You want to hear it? Okay. Now, um, sometimes, you know, people do a period of dharma, and then they decide, okay, I'm going to take a break, and they they leave the center, they leave the abbey, whatever. I'm not talking about monastics. I'm talking about lay people. And what do they do? They go look up their old boyfriends and girlfriends, you know? And I was thinking, how interesting. You know, you've already broken up with that person. You've already had a relationship Broken up, but because you you want to break from you know the strictness of the Dharma, um, you, you want some happiness that comes from a relationship. You go back to the same person, 
that you already had had a relationship with and broken up. Does that seem puzzling as puzzling to you as it seems to me? You know? It's like, if you're going to have a relation, at least get a new one. You know? Does that seem puzzling? Yeah? It seems very puzzling to me. You already broke up. You already decided there was nothing there that you were going to pursue. Well, maybe you didn't. Maybe that's the thing, you know? And always in the back of your mind and meditation was, you know, my meditation doesn't go well. I can go out and eat Susie Q or, you know, Sam Q again and, you know, start something up. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's what I was thinking. Um, you know, so just how, you know, if we see old partners, you know, how do we behave? Hmm? Okay, so anyway, mastics, you should approach families like the moon, drawing back the body and mind, always acting like newcomers without impotence towards families. Okay, so drawing back, I take that to mean you're not out there like, hi, I haven't seen you in so long, it's so good to see you. Sometimes you see at His Holiness's teachings, you'll see Sangha behaving like that with people. It's just really, you know, not so becoming. But, you know, this is kind of our tendency. Yeah, so drawing back means, you know, you have a little bit of calm. And it's like, oh, it's very good to see you again. I'm very happy to see you again. It's so long. You know, it's kind of there's some calmness in there. Okay. Um... Uh, always acting like newcomers. You know, when when you're a newcomer, you tend to be very polite. You don't get overly involved. Yeah? You kind of observe a lot and listen and take things in. Yeah? So if you're like that with when you visit families, when you're with lay people, you observe, you're quiet, you listen, you take things in. You know, you don't go in there and plunk yourself in and, you know, become the center of attention and tell all your stories and, uh, you know, do, do the whole thing maybe you used to do. Okay. And without impotence, what, what exactly does impotence mean? It's kind of... What? 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 Impudent, not impotent, impudent. Kind of sassy? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I know it. I kind of think of it as like being rude, you know, kind of rude or sad. Or presumptuous or, yeah, arrogant. Yeah, so without that, yeah. But, but again, having some kind of refined behavior. Not withdrawn and unfriendly but refined. Okay? Just as a person looking down an old well, a precipice, or a steep riverbank would draw back the body and mind, so too monastic should you approach families. Mm -hmm. So if you're at the edge of a well or a precipice, you don't 
lean over and get overly involved, do you? <laughs> you know, you draw back and you kind of, you keep centered. If you're on the edge of a precipice, you keep centered, don't you? So the same way, when you're with lay people, you've got to keep yourself centered. Yeah? And people may think whatever they think, that's okay. You know? Monastics, Kasapa approaches families like the moon, drawing back the body and mind, always acting like a newcomer, without impudence towards families. What do you think, bhikkhus? What kind of bhikkhu, monastics, what kind of monastic is worthy to approach families? And so the monastics say, Venerable Sir, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One, guided by the Blessed One, take recourse in the Blessed One. It would be good if the Blessed One would clear up the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from him, the monastics will remember it. And so then the Blessed One waved his hand in space, which apparently this gesture is not very common in the sutras. And he said, monastics... Just as this hand does not get caught in space, is not held fast by it, is not bound by it. So when a monastic approaches families, his mind does not get caught, held fast, and bound amidst families. Okay? So, um, you know, the hand just moves freely. It's not bound. It's not caught. Now, there's so many different ways where we can get caught, isn't there? You know? And the areas where we get caught, those are our buttons. I want everybody to like me. I want them, everybody to accept me. I want to feel close to these people. These people are such an important part of my life. I never want to be separated from them. All that attachment comes out, you know? Um, we, We have such a close connection... Uh, if I hang around with them just like I used to, I'll be able to lead them in the Dharma. Yeah, we tell ourselves that too. I'll go out to the movies with them, you know, and then because the bodhisattvas always, you know, bodhisattvas kind of move at the level of the common people and help them. Well, I'll just go out to the movies with them, do all these old things, and, and then I'll lead them in the Dharma. Are we bodhisattvas? You know, are our minds in control? Can we watch a movie filled with sex and violence and have no reaction? Yeah? So, okay, so we have to be careful about these things. Okay, so, um, okay, should not, the mind is not held fast by, um, by space, is not bound by it. So when a monastic approaches families, his mind does not get caught, held fast, and bound amidst families, thinking, may those desiring gains acquire gains. May those desiring merits make merits. Okay. So what the monastic is thinking here at this point, may those desiring gains acquire gains. Who's desiring gain? The monastic himself or herself. Yeah, I desire gain. Yeah, may those uh, desiring merits make merits. Who desires merits? Well, these lay people. Okay, so here we're talking in a Buddhist situation. I desire gains. I want some, you know, food, clothes, medicine, shelter, a new computer, you know, some new boots. I want this, I want that, I want something. 
and they want to make marriage so may both of our wishes be fulfilled may they give something to me you see you see how it's working may those desiring gains acquire gains may those desiring merits acquire merits so I need all these things I'm a sangha I'm an object of of, uh, you know that they can create merit with they want to create merit this is a good deal I get what I want they create merit everybody's happy and they go into the situation with that kind of mind what do you think not good not good okay okay so he doesn't get caught by thinking in that way right and instead he is as elated and happy over the gains of others as he is over his own gain such a monastic is worthy to approach families okay so often there can be a lot of jealousy over the offerings that one person receives that another person doesn't receive okay you know somebody comes from one family and they get they get a new maroon sweater they get new winter boots you know I have an old maroon sweater and the squirrel ate the fuzz in my boots last winter you know and they have and oh they went to that family and they you know and they got that offering of those new things and I'm kind of jealous because I want the same kind of nice looking sweater nice looking this or that or very warm coat you know very easy for the mind to start looking around yeah so we renounce lay clothes but then we get very attached to the color and texture of our robes and you know these kinds of things hey even our blankets you know some benefactor offered so and so a brand new blanket look it's so soft and smooth I still have my old blanket you know they offered them a new rug for their room I didn't get one so this is you know really why I think it's best that we share our requisites uh, and then people just take whatever it is they need it prevents a lot of jealousy but you know it is okay to receive private private offerings but so often they can be the source of jealousy or of arrogance you know if the mind is not careful okay so the, the, the kind of monastic you want to be is the one who is elated and happy over the gains of others as happy that somebody else got a new rug and a new blanket and a new sweater as if oneself had been given those okay in, um, in the precepts uh, one category of the precepts the Piasatikas or the lap no no the Nyagigas Piasatikas the forfeit the lapses with forfeiture there's a number of precepts that have to do with if somebody wants to give an offering you divert the purpose of the offering or you divert who they give the offering to okay so this can happen you know somebody says oh I want to give an offering to so and so it looks like they really you know need a new sweater and you say oh yeah they do but you know their old sweater is pretty good and I think somebody else just gave them a new one but you know my sweater is really shabby you know hand 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 and then you, in that way you divert it or somebody wants to give an offering to the whole Sangha community and then you plead your case oh but I have these expenses and nobody else has and then they give the, the offering to you 
okay? Or they want to give it to one monastic and you uh, get them to give it to your friend. So there's all these precepts about, you know, somebody wants to give an offering in a certain way and out of a selfish motive you're devote, you know, diverting who they give it to. Yeah? If somebody wants to make an offering to you, mm-hmm. you don't need anything, mm-hmm. can you then suggest someone Oh, yeah. You know, if they want to give something to you, you could say, I have enough. You know, you might want to give it to so-and-so. Sometimes they might say, but I want to give it to you. Then you say, thank you very much, and then you give it to so-and-so. Okay? Yeah. But see, that's different if you have enough and you're saying, you know, I have, please give it to somebody else. Okay. Okay. Um... And so being really happy when others receive offerings and others receive things, even if we don't. Okay? Um, monastics, when Kasapa approaches families, says, Mind does get, not get caught, held fast, or bound amidst families, thinking, May those desire gains, desiring gains acquire gains. May those desiring merits make merits. He is as elated and happy over the gains of others as he is over his own gains. Yeah? So it's holding up Kasapa as a, a model. What do you think monastics? How is a bhikkhu a monastic's teaching of the Dharma impure? And how is his teaching of the Dharma pure? Okay. The monastics say, Venerable Sir, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One. You know, we comply with what the Buddha said. Please tell us to clear it up. And then he says, uh, listen, and I, I will explain. And they say yes. And then he explains, A monastic teaches the Dharma to others with the thought, Oh, may they listen to the Dharma from me. Having listened, may they gain confidence in the Dharma. Being confident, may they show their confidence to me. Okay, what do you think about that? Impure. Okay, may they listen to the Dharma from me. Not from anybody else. Having listened, may they gain confidence in the Dharma. That's okay, gaining confidence. Being confident, may they show their confidence to me by making offerings to me, by praising me, by holding me in high esteem, by giving me stuff. Okay? Such a monastic's teaching of the Dharma is impure. So if you go in... With, with that mind, you know, I wonder what they're going to, you know, I'm going to give a Dharma talk. I wonder what they're going to give me afterwards. Yeah, may they give me a lot. May they give me things that I really like. Yeah, it's an easy mind to have. Very easy mind to have. Yeah. Okay. That's why I think, you know, one way, the way we do it here, whenever you're a representative of the Abbey, whatever you get, you know, whenever you're teaching, then it goes back to the Abbey. So, I mean, you may think that for the Abbey, may they give a big donation to the Abbey, but at least that's better than may they give a big donation to me. Okay? But still, we even shouldn't think that way about the Abbey. Okay? But a monastic teaches the Dharma to others with the thought the Dharma is well expounded by the Blessed One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. Oh, may they listen to the Dharma from me. Having listened, may they understand the Dharma. 
Having understood, may they practice accordingly. Thus he teaches the Dharma to others because of the intrinsic excellence of the Dharma. He teaches the Dharma to others from compassion and sympathy out of tender concern. Such a monastic's teaching of the Dharma is pure. Okay? So you might even want to copy this and, you know, think about it or recite it before, you know, if you're going to be giving a talk. The Dharma is well expounded by the Blessed One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. And then our wish for them, oh, may they listen to the Dharma for me. Having listened, may they understand the Dharma. Having understood, may they practice accordingly. And may they thereby gain all the benefits of listening and practicing the Dharma. And then teach the Dharma because of the great value of the Dharma, the beauty of the Dharma, and feeling very um, pleased that you have this incredible opportunity to share what little we know of the Dharma with other ones, with other people. And that this Dharma is not coming from me, it is coming from the Buddha. So people may come up afterwards and say, oh, I love when you teach, your teachings are so good. They aren't our teachings. We didn't think of any of this. Yeah, these teachings came from the Buddha. So you don't go, oh yes, you know, I give great teachings. They aren't our teachings. So the praise all goes to the Buddha. And then the Buddha continues, Kasapa preaches the Dharma to others with the thought, the Dharma is well expounded by the Blessed One, you know, as as we just went through. Um, uh, Oops. The Dharma is well expounded by the Blessed One. Directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see. Applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. Oh, may they listen to the Dharma for me. Having listened, may they understand the Dharma. Having understood, may they practice accordingly. Okay. And so teaching the Dharma with full respect out of the Dharma and with a sense of compassion and sympathy and tender concern for the people who are the audience. Not with a sense of, oh, I get to sit on this seat and now they're going to think I'm important and I'm going to have a little circle of followers who follow me around and then all my fo- my friends, you know, will think that I'm really important because I have a little, you know, entourage of people who think that I'm really super. So, you know, not teaching out of that kind of motivation. Yeah, that's really bad if you do that. Okay, then... Um, then the next one is uh, also at Shavasti. And, uh, okay, and, um, you know, the Buddha says, Monastics, what do you think? What kind of visitor is worthy to be a visitor of family? And what kind of um, monastic is not worthy to be a visitor of families? Okay, so what kind of monastics are worthy to accept lunch invitations? or to accept invitations to teach, yeah, and what are not worthy, okay? And so even though it's talking about it in, in that kind of situation, you know, a, vis- a visitor, being a um, monastic who is a visitor to families, when we go and visit our family or old friends or whatever, we should, you know, really bear all this in mind too, even 
there's a slightly different situation. And so then the, the monastics say, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One. Please explain so that we'll understand. And he says, monastics, a monastic might approach families with the thought, may they give to me, not hold back. May they give me much, not a little. May they give me fine things, not shabby things. May they give me promptly, not slowly. May they give me considerately, not casually. What do you think? Sounds pretty stuck up, huh? When a monastic approaches families with such a thought, if they do not give, he thereby becomes hurt. On that account, he experiences pain and displeasure. If they give a little rather than much, similarly, he becomes hurt and he experiences pain and displeasure. If they give shabby things rather than fine things, he's hurt and unhappy. If they give slowly rather than promptly, he's insulted and miserable. If they give casually rather than very politely, you know, he's hurt and offended and experiencing experiences pain and displeasure such a monastic is not worthy to be a visitor of families okay so even you know if we're going on behalf of the abbey to to visit a family or you know to do some chanting or you know we're visiting you know visiting a family for some reason or if we're even going to to visit our own family who are likely to give us things you know, to not have this thought in the back of our heads, you know, may they give me really nice things. It's Christmas time. I'm going to see my family. You know, they're going to want to give me something. I hope they give me something that I really like. You know, maybe I'll just kind of tell them news about the Abbey and in the midst of that, drop little hints about the kind of things I could use to do my work at the Abbey better, blah, blah, you know? Okay? So doing this kind of things with that kind of mind, wanting to get something out of others. Okay? Monastics. A monastic might approach families with the thought, when among others' families... How could I possibly think, may they give to me and not hold back? May they give to me much and not a little? May they give me fine things, not shabby things? May they give me promptly, not slowly? May they give me considerately, not casually? Okay? And uh, so if he does not, uh, when a monastic approaches families with the thought, that was such a thought, you know, because he's thinking, how could I as a monastic, with my sense of personal integrity, my consideration for others, possibly let those kind of nasty thoughts come into my mind? And so thereby guarding one's own mind from thinking in that way, or if that thought comes, you immediately realize what's coming through your mind and you get rid of it. Okay? If you you know, go visit a family with that kind of attitude. Then if they don't give or they, you know, give in an offhanded way instead of, you know, very politely or they give you a leftover, a hand-me-down instead of something new or they give you something that doesn't fit rather than something that does, then you don't become hurt, you don't become offended, you don't experience pain and displeasure. Okay? So such a monastic who's not going to get all bummed out if they don't get what they want or what they like, 
that kind of monastic is worthy to be a visitor of families. Hmm? You because know, it may happen in the future. Sometimes people call and that you know they want us to come and do a house blessing or come and and do a memorial service or uh, you know a birthing or whatever. Yeah, so to really make sure that the mind's very clean, clear if we do that. Okay? So the, the sutra kind of finishes, you know, along that line. That's the kind of main point. Now, there's a couple of examples of sutras of people who should not be going to visit families. Okay? So there's one called the bull elephant. Okay? <laughs> So thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Shravasti in Jetta's Grove, and at the Pindicus Park. Now on that occasion, a certain newly ordained monk was approaching families excessively. Okay? Newly ordained, you're all spick and span, you don't have everything, and you're really friendly, your mind's not much controlled, and you are approaching families excessively. The other monks told him the Venerable One should not approach families excessively. But when he was being admonished by them, he said, These elder bhikshus think that they can approach families, so why can't I? Mm -hmm. This is the same way we think, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, we see somebody doing something, and we think they're doing that. Why can't I? And this is one of the things that got, you know, in the early 90s when there were a lot of Buddhist, you know, scandals in the Buddhist circles. It's like there may be different masters. We don't know their level of practice, but they did certain things. Then people think, well, they're doing that. I can do it. Yeah. Or we might read an example of how Tilopa and Naropa and Marpa and Milarepa practiced, and we think they practice that way. Why can't I? Yeah, not realizing that they are great, highly realized beings, and we are not. Okay, so this is exactly how this monk was thinking. You know, the elder ones get to go to households. Why can't I? You know, this is exactly what we did as little kids. You know, my big brother, big sister got to do it. Why can't I? It's so incredible, generation after generation. Oh, human beings are the same. Then a number of the monks approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down on one side. So whenever they went to the Buddha, they approached in a respectful way, they bowed down, they sat down to one side. So they were always very, very respectful in the presence of the Buddha. And reported the matter to the Blessed One, who said... And so the Buddha is giving an example here. Monastics, once in the past there was a great lake and a forest with bull elephants dwelling in its vicinity. So in ancient India, bull elephants were like the big, the big ones, you know, in the jungle. And they're the powerful ones. Elephants really represent power. And Okay. So those elephants, the bull elephants, would, so they're the adult, adult elephants, would plunge into the lake, pull up the lotus stalks with their trunks, and having washed them thoroughly, would chew them and swallow them free from mud. 
the bull elephants would go in, pull the lotus stalks up from the trunk, wash them, you know, eat them slowly, eat them properly. They wouldn't have any mud or dirt on them, you know. This increased their beauty and strength. And on that account, they did not meet, meet death or deadly suffering. So be, this kind of behavior was really good for the, the health and, and success of these, these bull elephants. Their young offspring, emulating these great bull elephants, would plunge into the lake and pull up lotus stalks with their trunks. But without washing them thoroughly, without chewing them, they would swallow them along with the mud. This did not increase their beauty and strength, and on account of that, they met death or deadly suffering. So the babies saw the big guys doing it. They thought, I can do it. They didn't know how to do it right. So they pulled up the stalks. They didn't clean them. They gobbled them down, and they got sick. Yeah? Can't you just hear... (laughs) Somebody saying, I told you so. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes people do tell us so, don't they? And we don't listen. So, too, monastics. Here the elder monastics dress in the morning and taking bowl and robe enter a village or a town for alms. There they speak on the Dharma and the lay people show their confidence in them. They, you know, by offering lunch or requisites. They use their gains without being tied to them, uninfatuated with them, not blindly absorbed in them, seeing the danger in them and understanding the escape. So what it means seeing the danger is means seeing the danger of getting attached to these possessions or honor and seeing the escape, knowing that there is a way to get out of uh, this attachment. Okay, and wanting to be free of this attachment. This increases their beauty and strength, and on account of that, they do not meet death or deadly suffering. Okay, so these monks go into town to gather alms, they teach, they receive offerings, they may receive praise, but, you know, they're not tied to them, they're not infatuated, going, oh, I must be very good, they... You know, they gave me presents. They're saying good things about them. Not blindly absorbed in them. Wow, look at all these people, you know, looking at me. Like, like you were talking about, you know, when you were playing the, the Japanese drama. Everybody thinks you're so wonderful. So, you know, you're not thinking like that. And you're actually seeing the danger in thinking like that. And, and you know how to avoid that, how to escape from that. And so then being in that situation it actually increases the strength of your dharma practice because you are mindful, you are you know, mentally alert, you behave properly, and you're able to benefit others and keep your, your own um, dignity as a monastic. The newly ordained monastics, emulating the elders, dress in the morning and taking bowl and robes, enter a village or town for alms. There they speak the Dharma and lay people show their confidence to them. They use their gains while being tied to them, infatuated with them, blindly absorbed in them, not seeing the danger in them and not understanding the escape. This does not increase their beauty and strength, and on account of that they meet with death or deadly suffering. 
Therefore, monastics, you should train yourself thus. We will use our gains without being tied to them, unattached with them, not blindly absorbed in them, seeing the danger in them and understanding this escape. There, thus you should train yourself. So the Buddha is saying this is how you should train yourself when you are, you know, going out and giving teachings or collecting alms. Then there's another one here. Also Travasti. And here he's, um, he's speaking to a group of monks. Let me see. Yeah. Got it right. Yeah, he's speaking to a group of monks. So it's Shavasti. Now, on that occasion, a certain monk was socializing with families excessively. Okay, so all this stuff happened at the time of the Buddha, too. Okay. The other uh, monks told him the venerable one should not socialize with families excessively. But though he was admonished by them, he did not desist. So he just blew them off. Then a number of monastics approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down on one side and reported this matter to the Blessed One. And the Blessed One said, Monastics, one time in the past, a cat stood by an alley or a drain or a rubbish bin. Let me just see what the note on this is. I was just explaining what an alley means. You know, because he's translating from Pali. So the cat stood by an alley or a drain or a rubbish bin, watching for a little mouse, thinking, when this little mouse comes out for food, right there I will grab him and eat him. Then that mouse came out for food, and the cat grabbed it and swallowed it hastily without chewing it. Then that little mouse ate the cat's intestines and mesentery. And on account of that, the cat met with death and deadly suffering. Okay? So this cat was a little bit greedy, a little bit too attached to his mice, you know, gobbled it out all down without thinking about what he was going to do and what the results of it were. He was just out to get the pleasure of eating the mouse. And as a result, his whole insides got eaten up and he died. So two monastics, here a monk dresses in the morning and taking bowl and robe, enters a village or a town for alms with body, speech, and mind unguarded. Okay, so no mindfulness. Without setting up mindfulness, unrestrained in his sense faculties. So eyes are looking around, ears are listening, smells, you know, taste, tactile, your mind's thinking about all sorts of things, what you're going to get. You know, your sense is completely unguarded. He sees women there, lightly clad or lightly attired, and lust invades his mind. With his mind invaded by lust, he meets death or deadly suffering. For this monastics is death in the noble one's discipline, that one gives up the training and returns to the lower life. This is deadly suffering that one commits a certain defiled offense of a kind that allows for rehabilitation. The English is strange there. The certain defiled offense of a kind that allows for rehabilitation. I think it must mean that does not allow for rehabilitation. Yeah, I think there's a... It didn't read right. Okay, in other words, he got turned on, wanted to go have sex, wanted to have a relationship, left his ordination, jumped in bed, and that killed his practice. 
you know, because he broke his vows. Um, Therefore, monastics, you should train yourself thus. We will enter a village or town for alms with body, speech, and mind, guarded with mindfulness set up, restrained in our sense faculties. Thus, you should train yourself. Okay? So, this is the thing. We should always, you know, be aware of the possibility for sexual attraction with other people. You know, so I always tell people, you know, if you're a monastic, don't ever, ever think I, I've conquered that. You know, sex isn't going to bother me. Emotional relationship isn't going to bother me. As soon as you get a little bit too confident with that one, you know, something comes out of left field and there you go. So just be aware that, you know, this is kind of our strongest attachment. It's the one we have to be the most careful about. Otherwise, the mind goes bonkers. And we all know from previous experiences what happens when our mind falls in love. Your story was beautiful, you know, because we all knew exactly what you're talking about. The mind just does not think clearly. It it doesn't think, you know. Completely, you know, in its own fantasy world, you know. And this other person is definitely the inherently existent source of my suffering forever and ever and ever. And all the other relationships, they were no good because that person was flawed. But this one is different. This one, you know, is worth it, you know. So you really have to watch the mind about that one. Yeah, because when there's attachment in the mind, the mind goes crazy. Goes crazy. And you come up with all sorts of things, you know. Oh, they love me for the benefit of sentient beings. You know, they're going to be so unhappy if I'm not with them. You know, I'm so lonely. If I'm with them, then I'll be happy. My mind will be better. I'll be able to benefit so many more sentient beings. You know, you think of all sorts of completely, you know. Well, we're such a Dharma team, you know, they're a really good practitioner, you know, they'll get me up in the morning onto the cushion, they, you know, they're such really a bodhisattva, a wonderful practitioner, you know, if I'm in a relationship with this person, by golly, my Dharma practice is really going to improve. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that one. Okay? So, you know, the mind just thinks of all this stuff to justify attachment. Any questions so far? Earlier, when we first started, about taking precepts, but it's kind of a particular situation. Out, so, oh no, no, he's got precepts. 
don't you know he doesn't he doesn't want to break he doesn't want to you know, he's got precepts. Mm-hmm. But then my teacher is sitting right there eating, mm-hmm. and so it kind of to me it feels like I mean my intention there is no motivation, but it seems a little bit like high and mighty or pompous when you know. Mm-hmm. Because I'm following the precepts of my teacher, it isn't, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I don't know, it just seems like it puts an awkward situation. Okay. It's like, oh no, he wants to keep his precepts. They don't <laughs> turn to the teacher and say, oh, and he doesn't. Yes. But that's implied. Uh-huh. I mean, it feels kind of odd. Uh-huh. So like, on okay, okay. So the kind of situation where your teacher is eating after midday and the lay people are asking you to, and you, you turn it down, and then they figure out is because you have the precept and so you feel that it makes you look very good and it makes your teacher look bad. It depends a lot on the situation, depends on who you're with. Sometimes the lay people don't care so much if the, if the monastics eat in the evening so it doesn't necessarily make your teacher look bad. But what it does, or they may figure the teacher has a health problem you know, because there's different situations where people are these, they're making a health problem and didn't get enough for lunch, or da, da, da. but they will think, oh, you don't eat, oh, that's very good that you're not eating, you're practicing restraint, you know, and they'll respect that. But if you start going, hmm, yes, I'm not eating, you know, and act very pompous, that's not very good. You know, but if you, you, you know, just say, you know, as a junior man, well, you know, it's better for me if I try and keep this very strictly and, you know, and you, you, your whole demeanor is rather humble, I think it's okay. Yeah. That, did that happen when we were in Singapore? That was very easy. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, it didn't seem to be a big deal. Other questions? Okay, there's still a little bit of time here. I'll give you, we'll do this one more sutra. Also about kasapa. So this one says Rajgir uh, in the bamboo grove. Then the venerable Mahakasapa approached the, the Blessed One, paid homage, and sat down to one side. And the Blessed One said, you know, asked uh, Mahakasapa to exhort the monks. And, um, and, you know, please give them a, a Dharma talk. So he's kind of, you know, he's one of the senior disciples and he's saying, please, you know, talk to the juniors. And Mahakasapa uh, replies, Venerable Sir, the monastics are difficult to admonish now and they have qualities which make them difficult to admonish. <laughs> okay. For a list of such qualities, as <laughs> the sutta, um, they are impatient and do not accept instruction respectfully. Okay, so they're impatient, they're twitchy, they're restless, they want their own way, they have better things to do than to listen to their seniors, you know. Um, and they don't accept instruction respectfully. You try and tell them something and they go, who are you? What do you know? You do the same thing. You know, so-and-so does it. Why are you picking on me? You're always being so rude to me. How come you're getting down on me? You know, all that super sensitive ego stuff. Okay? So, Makasapa's a bit fed up. So here, Venerable Sir, <laughs> I saw a, um, a monastic named Banda a pupil of Ananda, 
and a uh, another monk named Abhinjika, a pupil of Anuruddha. So Ananda and Anuruddha are both senior disciples of the Buddha, so they had their own students. So those two students were competing with each other in regards to their learning, saying, come monk, who can speak more? Who can speak better? Who can speak longer? You know, so they're having a little competition about, you know, who's the most learned, who's the best monk who can show off. Then the, uh, the Blessed One addressed a certain monk thus, Come monk, tell the, the monk Banda and the monk uh, Abhinjika in my name that the teacher calls them. Yes, sir, and he went off and he told them the teacher calls the venerable ones. Yes, friend, these bhikkhus reply, uh, you know, these two monks reply, and they approached the Blessed One, paid homage, sat down to one side. And then the Buddha said to them, and the Buddha's very skillful when he hears that people did different things. He doesn't just call them and say, I heard you did this. You did this and you did that, and how dare you, that's unbecoming. He doesn't do that. He says, is it true, monks, that you have been competing with each other in regard to your learning as to who can speak more, who can speak better, who can speak longer. So he doesn't come out with the accusation, you've been doing this. He asks them, is it true that you've been doing it? Okay. Now, these monks, probably because they were in the presence of the Buddha, had the good sense to tell the truth, and they said, yes, venerable sir. You know, there's probably some who want to cover up their stuff and say, no, no, we weren't doing that, not at all, that so-and-so just telling nasty stories. You know, some people would do that, but these monks, at least they said, yes. So then the Buddha said, have you ever known me to teach the Dharma thus? Come, monastics, compete with each other in regard to your learning and see who can speak longer, who can speak better, who can uh, speak more. Are you saying, have I ever taught you to act like that? Yeah. And they say, no, venerable sir. He says, then if you've never known me to teach the Dharma thus, what do you senseless people know and see that having gone forth in such a well-expanded Dharma and Vinaya, you compete with each other in regards to your learning as to who can speak more, who can speak better, and who can speak longer? So he's saying, if you've never known your teacher to teach you to behave that way, why are you so senseless? You know, that this dharma, this vinaya are very pure. They will lead you to liberation and enlightenment. Yeah, so knowing that, that the dharma is so valuable, the vinaya is so valuable, why are you tossing that out the window to act so stupidly and competing with each other about who can... Who knows more? Who can speak longer? Who can speak better? You know. So he's scolding them. You know, he's scolding them. Then the monks prostrated themselves with their heads at the Blessed One's feet and said, Venerable Sir, we have committed a transgression. So foolish, so confused, so inept were we, that in having gone forth in such a well-expounded Dharma and Vinaya, we competed with each other in regard to our learning. So as, as to who can speak more, who can speak better, who can speak longer. Venerable Sir, may the Blessed One pardon us for our transgression, seen us as a transgression, for the sake of future restraint. 
So right then and there, they bowed down, they apologized. They said, you know, I was foolish. I committed a transgression. The Dharma and the Vinaya are really wonderful. How, you know, it was really stupid of us to do this. And so please, you know, we apologize. Please forgive us. And we see this as a transgression. And for the sake of future restraint, meaning I see it as a transgression and I want to restrain from it in the future. So they're not just apologizing and then the next time it comes up they're going to do the same old behavior again. Yeah, But they really have it in their mind, oh, I blew it. I'm going to be really careful now and restrain myself in the future. And actually, in the suttas, this is kind of a standard, um, you know, there's different stock passages. This is the stock one for making a confession when the Buddha reprimands a a monastic. And, you know, in the... um, in the Tibetan Sojong, when they uh, when you do a confession, then they say, "Do you see this this action as a fault?" And you say yes. And you say, "Will you abstain from it uh, henceforth?" And you say yes. So it's very important when we confess the transgression that we see it as a fault. We're not just doing it because we expect somebody else to, you know, we're, we think that somebody else expects us to, and we have some you know, wish to abstain from it in the future. Okay. So some things are harder to abstain from in the future, you know, and some things, you know, like Venerable Senke, please eat in the evening. You know, don't think in your mind, I'm going to, you know, confess this and then tomorrow I'm just going to eat one meal a day. You know, you're sick, eat. Okay, your health is important. So, you know, but for somebody who's big and fat, then to, you know, um, you know, then they, if they should confess this, they should have the idea that I'm going to restrain myself. Okay. So that they confess to the Buddha, then the Buddha says, Surely, monastics, you have committed a transgression. So foolish, so confused, so inept were you, that in having gone forth in such a well-expounded Dharma and Vinaya, you competed with each other in regard to your learning as to who can speak more who can speak better who can speak longer but since you see your transgression as a transgression and make amends for it in accordance with the Dharma we pardon you for it for it is growth in the noble one's discipline when one sees one's transgression as a transgression makes amend for it in accordance with the Dharma and undertakes future restraint so the Buddha of course you know pardons them and everything and I mean he scolds them he says you're absolutely right you were inept and you were foolish you know he doesn't say oh it was no problem that you acted like that he said you're right you know you were inept and foolish but it's very important when you're practicing to identify your transgressions you know it's very good practice to do that to make amends for them in accordance with the Dharma and that indicates that you're actually growing Okay, so he said it's, it is for growth in the noble one's discipline when one sees one's transgression as a transgression. So when we're able to say, yeah, this transgression is a transgression, you know, that means we're growing. We're not just justifying, rationalizing, brushing it off. Okay, we make amends for it. So we don't just see it as a transgression, but we make amends. 
shall we care about karma? Okay. Mm-hmm. And we undertake restraint. So we're not just making amends and then going out and doing it again, but we're actually undertaking restraint and have a, a firm determination in our mind not to act like that again in the future. Okay. Yeah. Well, what do we do in our minds with those things that we know we're going to do? All those little ones cutting the forest, for example. Yeah. Okay, so there's a lot of them that we know we're going to do again, like, you know, we're working in the forest and so on. So ones like that, you know, there is a reason why we're working in the forest. We're not just kind of, you know, kind of going out there and cutting down trees just for the heck of it, but we're actually doing it so that we can prevent fires, so we can create a better habitat for the animals and for the different beings who live in there. You know, so we're clear about our motivation. We have regret for cutting down the trees. We certainly don't try and harm any bugs who are living there, and we try and rescue as many as we can. You know, but there's a you know there's a reason why we're doing that, and we're clear on that reason. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the time of confession, then. Mm-hmm. So that it's that piece of the, the resolve not to do it again. I suppose yeah. that that's where we need to remind ourselves of the motivation. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. You know, and also because in certain of them, like the one about eating, you know, there's certain or what riding in vehicles for goodness right. sake, you know. So, uh, you know, yes, I rode in vehicles, but why did I ride in vehicles? Well, there was certainly a good reason and a, a good motivation. It was beneficial for others or whatever. And so, you know, what I'm confessing is not a naturally negative action, but I'm confessing that there was the prohibition by the Buddha, and I went against that prohibition. However, I went against the prohibition for one of the reasons that the Buddha allowed you to go against the prohibition. Okay? So you're not creating negative karma because there, you know, there was an exception for that kind of thing. Okay? So some people might even say you don't even need to confess it because you're already acting on, a, on one of the exceptions for it. Yeah. But still, it could be good to realize, you know, I bathe more than twice a month. Well, definitely that's for the benefit of sentient beings, okay? <laughs> so, yeah? Okay. And so many of these things, you know, they were made according to the the conditions in a certain society, and those conditions don't hold true right now. And the action is not a naturally negative action. Okay, it's very important to distinguish what is a naturally negative action and what isn't. That's very important. And then, you know, if it's not a naturally negative action, then you see, boy, there's a difference in culture here. You know, well, why don't you ride in vehicles? Well, at the time of the Buddha, it's only rich people who could afford vehicles. The vehicles were put by animals or other human beings who suffered. You got all pompous because you were sitting on that vehicle. So, you know, then the monastics didn't ride vehicles. But now, you know, if you want to go teach, if you need to go to the doctor, if you're doing some work for the monastery, you need to ride in a vehicle. Now, if you have the mind that when a lay person's coming, it's like, what kind of car are they driving me in? Oh, it's not a Beamer, shucks. You know? 
then that's not a very good mind, okay? Because you're kind of checking out who's driving what car and I won't drive in the good cars. You know, that's not a good state of mind. But if you're doing work for the monastery or whatever, you know, you're just aware you're riding in the vehicle. You're aware of why you're not going on a joy ride. Okay. Yeah, so you don't need to get all tangled up in those kinds of things. You just realize, you know, at the time of the Buddha, this was the situation. Now, riding in a vehicle in our society is no big thing. You know, bathing more than twice a month is something everybody hopefully does nowadays. So you don't get all tied up and, oh, I'm bathing more than twice a month. I'm not a very good monastic, da, da, da. You know? I mean, give me a break. Okay? <laughs> Can you speak a little more on the other side? Why it's important then to confess it though? Okay, so why is it important to confess it? Some people would probably say you don't need to confess it because you're already allowing, you know, acting within the, the exceptions that the Buddha said. But I think what it's good to do is because they say that, that there's a certain fault that you create when you go against what the Buddha said. So you're just kind of acknowledging, yes, I did that, but I did it for a good reason, and it's not a big deal. But, and so you still keep in mind, you know, oh, well, when I ride in cars, I shouldn't be checking out what kind of car it is. You know, and when I take showers, I shouldn't be taking a, a really long shower or making a bath and lying in the tub for ages in a bubble bath. You know, so you're just remembering what that thing is, and that just helps you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's all sorts of precepts like that. You know, that in our society, our culture, then it, you know, it actually becomes a little bit strained if you try and keep everything very to the to the detail. Now there's some people who do do that, you know, and you'll meet some of our friends in the Thai forest tradition, and it's great, it's wonderful. They feel good practicing like that. Great, you know, we, we're choosing to interpret the Vinaya in another way, and that's fine, you know. And I think the basic thing is that we all, as a community, act somewhat consistently that we don't have our own individual interpretations of what we're doing. You know, that's wrong for everybody else to do, but it's okay for me. Okay? Yeah? Similar to uh, the last question. Uh, if you're confessing something that you know is not good, but you know you have a intensity that I'm still working on, mm-hmm. so how would you say I won't ever do this again? I know it's bad. Yeah. Yeah, you say I I know it's not good and I'm working on it. <laughs> and I'll do my best. Yeah. Mhm. I'm just thinking that um that rationalizing and justifying is so subtle and so sneaky. And the thought that really came to me not that's not news. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's almost like you know, we just don't have a clear mind when we're doing that, and the the uh, recognize the importance to have people around that hold similar values, mm-hmm. because then I'm less likely, or I'm more willing to examine my rationalization, or mm-hmm. someone's willing to say eh, that doesn't sound quite right, and it's 
easier when we're around others is for me. You know, where I don't give it that second thought because nobody else is going to kind of hold a similar standard or the standard that I want to hold. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Because if, you, if you're around people who don't keep really good conduct and who rationalize and justify, then we don't even notice we're doing it because that's just the common trend how everybody does it. Whereas, like you say, if you're around people who are really practicing sincerely, then just by watching them be very vigilant with themselves, it inspires us to be. Yeah. And that's the way it is with, with many things, you know. If you, people, if you see people studying, then it's easier for you to study, you know. If you see people horsing around, you're going to start to horse around. And so that's why in the community, you know, we may say, well, it's just some little thing. Well, for you, maybe it is, but then it has an effect on the whole ambience and how other people think that they can act. I think Kevin's point too is, is just as we, I've been studying the Shikshamana precepts and they, there are so many and they're, they do seem to kind of detail sometimes like why but it, it seems like the mind of, of rationalization is so sneaky yes. that to actually have to really be clear about even that's why I asked the question about how to hold this to be mm-hmm. really clear about what this means helps mm-hmm. in the places where I could rationalize and slide where it's not okay yeah so it, it keeps the mind, this my, my mind, more alert mm-hmm. to all the things that I'm doing. like the same thing when you were talking about <coughs> confessing. Mm-hmm. As opposed to not knowing it's an exception, you kind of hold that same thing in mind is that mm-hmm. I'm clear about my, the justification for it and not carrying it to the place where I don't right. confess it, but I've rationalized it way beyond you. Right, exactly, exactly, yeah. 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 The thing I noticed in the sutra is how the um, junior monastics answered the Buddha. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, but. <laughs> 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 yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a very good point. The junior said, yes, venerable sir. They didn't say, yeah, but. You don't understand. It's really like this, Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good example for us, you know. They don't start out explaining, you know. Because that's what we do, you know. And you can see it so often in in the community, you know. You just make one small comment and then somebody has to explain everything, like why it's like that. They're not really a bad, evil, sinful, unworthy person just because they left the sock on the chair. But, you know, you just say, please clean up this, you know, please put away the sock. Oh, well, I did, I put it there just because I thought I was going to be it was just going to be there for a minute and I was planning on getting back to it but then somebody interrupted me and you know I was trying to get back to it again and I got interrupted again and I'm really sorry but no I'm not actually but um, so I'll clean up the sock you know as soon as possible and two days later it's still sitting there you know yeah but we always have a reason don't we we always have a reason. And we think that everybody else is as interested in our excuses. <laughs> and we noticed this, didn't we? Remember there was one person who came to work for us? And she always had an excuse when something wasn't done. 
you know, always, and it went on and on and on, you know, and people think you're really interested in, in their excuse, and you're just saying, you know, the socks here, put it away. You know, you, you really, like... <laughs> yep, yeah, you remember that? So. saying, don't make excuses, your friends don't need them, your enemies won't listen to them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Your friends don't need the excuses, and your enemies won't listen to them. Okay. Due to this Grow. May that one have no decline, but increase forever. 